Hello, and welcome to Groove Therapy, a new podcast that explores the effects of live music on our brains, bodies, and our lives, and provides a space for our listeners to learn more about how you can bring the magic of live music into your everyday life. My name is Dr. Leah Taylor, and I am joined here with my fabulous co-host, Tara Lee Weathers. Hello, everyone. And today we are back with part two of our interview with Reed Mathis. And we are so excited that we were able to get Reed back so quickly and be able to finish up this conversation with him so that you guys could listen to this right away. I'm sure you probably have some questions for him from our last part one of this episode. And hopefully we'll be able to answer those for you during this part. And if you have other questions, please feel free to bring them to our Facebook group that we have going, our community that we have created that is Groove Therapy Podcast Community. Is that right, Tara Lee? Yep, that's right. You got it. Okay, awesome. Tara Lee's running the social aspects of our podcast, so I have to check in about that. But yeah, come to our Facebook group, bring your questions if they don't get answered. We'd love to dive in deeper into this conversation. So this is kind of like just a jumping off point for diving in deeper. And you guys come there, let's discuss this, ask about things that you want to know about. And if you're anything like me, you'll be listening to both parts of this episode with Reed and you'll have lots of questions that will come up and you will absolutely be experiencing music and live music in a different way. Yeah, be prepared to have your mind blown and In this episode, you'll learn things about Beethoven that you never knew. And I wish that there was a time machine and I could go back in time and go to a Beethoven show. (laughs) Uh, But you'll just have to find out what that means by listening to this episode. And so, yeah, let's listen to it. All right. All right. Here we go. Here's Reed, part two. Hey, hello and welcome back. So we have Reed Mathis here and of course, Tara Lee Weathers, and we are back here to finish up the conversation that we began with Reed before he had to quickly disappear to go and teach a bass lesson. So welcome back, Reed. You had like impeccable intuition that you needed to be somewhere (laughs) in that moment. So I think that's really amazing. I think so too. The unconscious mind is endlessly fascinating. Yeah. The whole phenomenon of Telling yourself the night before when you want to wake up and then having that happen is crazy to me. Yes. And what happened last week was amazing too. Like I, it was like one minute past when I suddenly realized, you know, and it wasn't like the result of thinking. It was just a really vivid, sudden prompt that I needed to go. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, wow. Fascinating. Yeah. And probably if you were thinking about it a lot, you maybe wouldn't have remembered Like, I know when I'm thinking about things and I start thinking about other things and then I start thinking about other things. And then before you know it, I miss the thing that I was thinking about going to. But when you kind of let it all go, it just naturally your body and mind and everything knows or the energetics of it all, the quantum physics-ness. Yeah. As a musician, one of the things that I've always sort of believed and tried to live by is that you can't think and listen at the same time. I mean, there's some evidence that thinking is actually a auditory experience in the brain that you are literally talking to yourself and the part of your brain that hears through your ears also lights up when you're thinking, meaning that you are 
occupying the circuitry with which you would be receiving the world while you're thinking. So thinking in some ways literally blocks your access to reality. So what we always say in the band is, you know, you can't think and play at the same time. So if you're thinking about what you're doing or what you want to do, you are literally ignoring your bandmates and the audience. You know, I'm from the John Coltrane School of Music can actually alter the psyche of the listener. Like, it's not just for pleasure. You can learn new modalities for interfacing with reality from nonverbal music. You know, he really believed that the music he was making with his band, if you just listened to it and were open to it, it would initiate or could initiate change, actual change within you that was bypassing your verbal mind. I firmly believe that, and that's what basically my entire career is based on. (laughs) I like lyrics too, don't get me wrong. So Reed, that kind of ties into one of the things I'd love to follow up with you about from our conversation earlier, where you mentioned live music as a safe container to be able to take risks to retrain your nervous system to feel safe. And so I went back to my dissertation. I'm actually kind of glad that we had this little break so that I could go back. And I think there's only, at least there was only one study that I could find where they looked at, you know, how live music can have that experience of really helping with attachment disorders, Mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, you mentioned a little bit about secure nervous systems, which comes from having a secure attachment growing up. And the musician that they looked at was Lady Gaga. And so her fans are called little monsters. And she is their mother monster. And so through the relationship with their mother monster, the little monsters were able to have this experience that they weren't able to have before. And I think that study even went into like the relationship outside of the live music container as well, because especially in the beginning, and I'm not a little monster, so I don't know this from personal experience, but, you know, I think she did a lot to really like connect with her fans outside. And so they really felt like they had this place where, you know, they could come and they could really be themselves, which I think is really important too, and have that like retraining of the earlier experience that was not positive to be able to then realize that they could feel safe in the world. And also there was a part of my dissertation, I actually just highlighted it because the first theme that I found there was only three. And the first one was that music connects people deeply. A sub theme of that was that there's this accepting environment that is created through the live music experience. And Tara Lee, I think this is really interesting because this actually ties into what we talked about with Joel and also what was brought up with Zach about like that deep connection that happens within live music. And so What I wrote was, within this accepting environment, a sense of safety is created reminiscent to that of a secure attachment, where individuals feel free to explore external and internal environments. This exploration can lead to new insights and a sense of competence or mastery of the external environment, as well as enhanced social intelligence. 
And so Reed, that really ties into what you were talking about. And I'm curious if you have like an example that you can give to us of where you've noticed that happening or some way to kind of like really, yeah, just give an example of it out in the real world. Well, here's what I can say. There's some music that connects with like such a deep part of you that you can't really verbalize what it is doing to you or why you like it. Or if you're trying to explain to somebody why you like this band so much or something, and you're just like, I don't know how to explain why I like it so much. It's just awesome. You know, it's connecting to an emotional part of you that, that you ordinarily would not have direct access to. And then, okay, so there's this show that I'm thinking of. It was in, I think, May of 2002, maybe June of 2002, my band was playing at this festival, but after us was my favorite band at the time, which was The Slip. Mm -hmm. I love them so much. <laughs> they went on and I went in the front row and there was a group of people there that I had met and was friendly with, but not kind of in a superficial way. Like you meet people while you're touring and you talk briefly and then move on. Mm -hmm. And so I was hanging with these people watching this band and we were all having this really emotional experience. And I felt myself past these thresholds of emotion that I would normally hide or stifle in public, like thresholds of vulnerability that I would consider to be private, you know? And even if I was feeling those at a concert, it wouldn't normally feel safe to display that around strangers or acquaintances, you know? And something about that band made me, not really that consciously, but like made me trust the people I was around. These people that I didn't really have direct evidence that they were secure people to experience, I guess, wounds around. And because of the band and because of the music, I was able to take the risk of feeling really personal stuff and not pretending I wasn't feeling that, allowing my face to show it or allowing my body language to show it or just even allowing the temperature changes and energy moving through the body that you feel when you're having a really profound experience. And I just remember having this feeling and having sort of the alarms go off, like this is the kind of thing you hide when you're in public, dude, you know, <laughs> turning and looking at this girl, Meredith, and this other girl, Vivian, and just seeing in their eyes that they were having the same kind of feeling. One of them was tearing up. And I didn't really, I don't even think I knew their last names. You know what I'm saying? And in that moment, I saw through eye contact and what do they call it? The vagal nerve, facial, primate, facial stuff, you know? Yeah, that scanning, they That they were safe. Mm -hmm. And that we were alike. And that these things that I have been trained socially to suppress and or hide are not only acceptable to them, I have them in common with these people. And that all happened in a, in a flash because of a song that a band was playing. If that could be done intentionally in a therapeutic setting, it would be front page news. It would be like a huge therapeutic breakthrough to be able to have that kind of deep down access to and affirming of affected states, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was like, well, this is just a friggin' rock band from New England that is affecting this change in me. 
And it happened with my conscious awareness and everything. It was like a freaking miracle, you know? And I have been bonded with these people ever since. When I see them, which is not that often these days, mm-hmm. there's a presumed intimacy in those relationships that has not waned. Even when I don't see them for three or four years, when I see them, both of us recall that safe attachment. Mm-hmm. And it is durable, you know? And it's just like, man, that's all because of this band. That's the concrete example that came to mind for me. Like, these are now like safe attachment figures for me that if I had passed them in a restaurant or something, you know, I would have just been like, hey, bye, mm-hmm. or whatever. Or, you know what I mean? It was It was because of the music that was happening at that moment and because we were all allowing it to affect us that that was possible, you know? And I would be willing to bet that we were tapping into something that the ancients would have had a ritual for. Mm -hmm. You know, who knows if you went back 20,000 years, what a shaman would have been initiating for people to pass these thresholds together. And these days we don't have that. So live music can actually provide that setting, which is amazing. Yeah. And what's also so amazing is that it can affect so many people at one time. So it's right. it's like this really low cost form of supercharged therapy, right? you know, and is so non-threatening because it is nonverbal and there's no touch that's happening. And there's uh-huh. no like fear of intimacy because you're just going to a concert, you know? So it's like, you're not even showing up with your defenses up. Right. You're not going to a group therapy meeting. You're going to a show. That's right. And it's also socially acceptable to not get vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So you don't feel any pressure or... I've had experiences where you're supposed to have a really profound experience. And like, you know, going into it, I grew up in Oklahoma and once I was one of the only white people allowed in this sweat lodge ceremony that this tribe has been doing for, you know, 80 years on this location or something. And because of who I was dating and who her mother was, I was allowed to sit in on this sweat. And I just remember feeling so much pressure to be affected. Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, well, this is my chance. This better work, you know. And that was really prohibitive. And the concert doesn't demand that from you. It just offers it. You can have a completely superficial experience. That's totally acceptable too. Like there's no, it's, it's cool. (laughs) It's cool. I use it constantly. I mean, the biggest thing when the quarantine situation came down, the biggest change for me was just that I live real near Terrapin Crossroads. And for the last year before that, the year before that, I had been um, just going there a lot. You know, I didn't even look to see who was playing most of the time. I would just be like, after seven, there's music at Terrapin and there's music people at Terrapin. And these are people that have jobs and relationships and kids or, you know, whatever. It was just this place to get together and be well, basically, you know, and be together. And we could have the kind of shared intimacy that you would associate with a very, very, very close friend without involving each other in the rest of our life. Like, I didn't know what they did for a living. They don't know about my background. And yet we're having this communal vulnerability that really just seems like a real shortcut 
mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's massive. And when the quarantine happened and that was taken away, I realized suddenly how much I was relying on it for social connection. It's like those are relationships that don't even need anything else. It doesn't have to spill out into non-music. Like it's enough to be like, well, we get together when there's music and that's the content of our relationship. And it still felt really like these are my people. It's an incredible way to gather. And, you know, I guess like teenagers really use music to self-define. And sometimes in reverse, like they decide who they want to be around and then they begin immersing themselves in the music that those people like. I know when I first listened to like Metallica and stuff like that, before that I had mostly been listening to what my older sister listened to. It was like the Go-Go's and Madonna and Tears for Fears and all this stuff. And then suddenly I was in this social situation where they were all listening to very different music than that, you know, Suicidal Tendencies and Metallica and Megadeth and all this. And I was sort of like, all right, I'm down. And I proceeded to become a fan of those musics because there was a concrete social advantage to being a fan of those musics, you know? And I think a lot of people determine what music they're going to like based on the social function of that music, you know? And even getting into jazz for me, the older kid at my high school that was being a stable attachment figure for me at the time when my family was not a stable place, he would let me go to lunch with him in his car and he would have like Charlie Parker on in the car. And I didn't like it, but I wanted to like it because I wanted to solidify my attachment to this stable person. Mm -hmm. So I deliberately trained myself to like jazz because I wanted these social connections, you know? And even when I got into the Grateful Dead at first, it was largely because I was in a group of people that were all about it. And I was like, sure, I'm down. I'm, I'm not opposed, you know? And then next thing you know, I'm feeling very personal about this music, you know? But this is something I've been given a lot of thought to lately, like how I think people are primarily socially driven to connect with music. And this is like something I've kind of overlooked, I feel like. Personally, I feel like I've related to music as a element, you know, that it's not personal, that it's like air or sunshine or something, you know, it just exists. And we overlay all this sapient information on it, but that it's really just an element, a force, a vibration, you know. And I'm really trying to ground myself in like, well, how do people actually use this? How do people connect to it? How do they get to it? You know, I mean, it's one thing to make cool music. It's another thing to present it to people in the way that they are predisposed to consume it. You know, like, I don't have any answers. This is just something I've been uh, mulling over the last couple of weeks, like how to present music so that it's framed in the way that it looks to them from their vantage rather than describing how it looks to me. Mm-hmm. How do I figure out how non-musicians are interfacing with this and how do I frame it in that dialect rather than in my dialect? Because my dialect, when it's verbalized, it sounds really heady and thinky. But my experience of it is not thinky. It's really emotional and non-verbal. 
So that's obviously hard to explain. <laughs> and so my explanations end up being really thinky, which is not what I want them to be. So I don't know. I'm trying to figure out how to talk about music without having it feel that way. But then I'm talking to people like you two who <laughs> are very much thinking about music the way I am. So I know. I was going to say, I love this conversation. Yeah. Like, we don't have the opportunity, at least I haven't found the opportunity to connect with people about music in this way that often. And what a gift this podcast is for us to be Yay. able to do this. Yeah. And I believe there's a lot more of us out there. Well, hey, we have a bunch of people that listen to us. So they're all out there listening. Hey, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And really most of the research that's been done on live music has been on why people consume it. So you can certainly find that out. You know, just go to Google Scholar and type in live music and that's what's going to come up in the research. There's not the talk about what we've been talking about, you know, how this actually could be an intervention for attachment disorders and how it could really, you know, help with trauma and like people haven't taken it to that depth. And I think that's the thing. I mean, you've obviously done so much self-education on the nervous system and on all of these aspects and you live music. So, you know, you're able to make those connections in a deeper level than most people are. So you just have to come up to the superficial level. But the good thing is, is that that's, that's really easy to do because you just talk to some people about why they like music and haven't <laughs> dove in as deep. I experimented with something on the first few Electric Beethoven tours. I experimented with talking to the audience <laughs> about this stuff, which I had never really done before. Can you give us an example of like how you did that and how it went? Well, it was... Partially, the entire impetus for the Beethoven project was to use him as an example of trauma resolution through music, through performing, you know, and how he's a very, very extreme example of that because it's almost completely overt in his music that that's what he's doing. And the whole thing of losing his hearing and contemplating suicide and then writing the third symphony, which walks you through ego death and rebirth and how his grief for the life that was being stolen from him, he felt as losing his hearing. He, he was, you know, just like the pandemic has robbed all of us of what we thought this year was going to be like for us. And we've all had to sort of grieve that, you know, I mean, in a variety of ways, you know, he was this brilliant pianist who had that future taken away from him. And he had a serious crisis over whether without that future, what did he even want to stick it out, you know? And then he had this grief process of letting go of his attachment to that identity of a hearing person and the allowing of a new identity of, well, I guess I'm a composer who doesn't actually perform anymore. And then his full embracing of that to the point of telling the story of his grief and rebirth non-verbally through a symphony, you know. And then after the third symphony, basically everything he wrote for the rest of his life followed that little arc. And it was this just immense insight that he had that basically started all of modern music and ended up in New Orleans and combining with blues and 
gospel and Caribbean and West African drumming to become jazz, which 30 years, 40 years later became rock and roll, a case can be made that that act of undergoing that grief and re-identifying process and being able to articulate it in this new sort of sonic dialect actually created the art form that we now call live music with a lot of other factors, but him being a prime mover. And so I would basically just talk about that. (laughs) I would talk about, you know, how we're not all pianists that go deaf, but we are all coping with severe loss, even just a normal life where nothing quote unquote bad happens to you. You lose your youth, you lose your parents, things don't work out the way you want and you might perceive that as a loss, a loss of a, of a potentiality, you know? And of course we all have attachment figures go away. We all have breakups and things and ultimately everybody dies. So we're all experiencing loss that feels painful and unjust Mm -hmm. and coping with it. And he is a, he is just a really, really, really extreme example of real specific example of somebody who, by the time they experienced their massive loss, had already spent 30 years training himself to articulate emotional things in sound. So when this event happened, he already had the tools Mm -hmm. to articulate it non-verbally and was kind of the perfect person to sort of invent this therapeutic modality through symphonic music. And, you know, it being violins and trumpets and things is not part of his point. That's just what was happening in his part of the world that year. You know what I mean? Like, when we think of Beethoven, we think of those instruments and those kind of venues. And and it's like, well, no, that's just, that was an accident. That's just where he was born and what Mm-hmm. He was born into what what's unique to him is the actual writing, the actual songs. If he'd been born somewhere else, they would have been different instruments, you know, but they still would have had this message of it's okay to lose the life you thought you had and to allow a new one. And here I'll prove it to you. That's basically what his music says, you know. Mm-hmm. So I've had a lot of experiences where I sort of talk about that and talk about how what we're doing on stage when we improvise on these forms that he built is sort of like, it's an opportunity if you want it as an audience member to sort of dance your way, or if you're not a dancer, to feel your way with us through your own grief process. This can be almost like a safe container. His music is almost designed to be a safe container for grief and grief resolution. And the first few times I talked about it on stage, I felt really self-conscious and just sort of like, what is this, a lecture? Like, what are you doing, dude? Just play. <laughs> like, But then afterwards, people would come up to me and talk to me and be so affected and moved. And people would then, I think, receive what we were playing differently than if I hadn't said anything. It yes. just wouldn't occur to most people to think that there was that much content in this instrumental music, you know? So I got to a point where I was like, well, I should, it's good to talk about this. Yeah, absolutely. Because people don't even realize that that's an option. 
right? And it's so important to put language to this experience that is nonverbal so that we can begin to understand what exactly is happening and what is the potential of it? Because otherwise, you know, we may have this transformative experience and we know that something happened, but we don't know what happened. And I mean, you you have so much knowledge inside of you about the potential of this. And like, it's so exciting for me to hear that and how you were able to take this. I don't know much about Beethoven. So this has been really fascinating to listen to this. And I'm so excited to dive into it and to eventually be able to go and experience electric Beethoven and, you know, this experience. But when Beethoven was performing, there was not the ability to be able to have that experience through dance, right? You went into a symphony and you sat down. Towards the end of his life. But when he was younger, he played in pubs and dance halls and, you know, party situations. So the sort of everybody sit down and shut up aspect Back in his day, even the most formal settings, people were talking and eating or dancing or fucking or whatever. Like, I don't know what these these venues were not like our concert halls. It wasn't one of the genres. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it was that was all the music they had. So it wasn't like, well, we could go see the rock band or we could go see Beethoven. It's like, no, this is, they didn't have options. So all of the things we associate with live music were happening at his performances. Okay, that's good to know. I need to get my timeline straight. (laughs) Thank you for clearing that up for me. (laughs) There was plenty of hash and opium and, you know, obviously drinking and, you know, it's really hard to picture because we're so indoctrinated with how, we treat classical music these days. Yeah. But even the word classical wasn't applied to this music until the 1900s, you know? So it's hard for us to picture what it would have been like. Well, I think it's probably easier for us to picture what it would have been like because that's the live music that we live. But yeah, to associate, you know, to have that label of classical music, like I do picture, you know, the sit down and shut up and listen. But mm-hmm. I guess that's just the reproduction of of that classical music. Think of in 150 years, if people are performing fish, it might be like sit down and shut up and yeah. listen to this historic. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It wasn't historic when he was alive. He wasn't even that popular, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, people probably couldn't sit down and shut up and listen to his music when he was playing. I mean, I can't sit down and shut up. I mean, I'll shut up because I don't want to talk during music, (laughs) but I couldn't sit down if Fish was playing. No way. It certainly wasn't quiet, reverent situations. Mm -hmm. He played for ticket sales. I mean, he would borrow money, rent a venue, promote the show, and charge tickets. So he had to write things that would fill the room and keep people's attention which is not how we think about classical music these days, you know? I mean, he was like, you know, one of, if not the first people to rise to prominence without working for a a monarchy or working for a church or, you know, he was an atheist or not an atheist, but not a Christian. Mm -hmm. He had two translations of the Bhagavad Gita. He was obsessed with like Egyptian spirituality and, He like wrote scriptures, Egyptian shit and shit from the Bhagavad Gita all over his walls. Are you Beethoven reincarnated? (laughs) Definitely not. Definitely not. Because I'm kind of nice. Oh, he wasn't nice? I don't think he was that nice. Uh, I think he was a bit of a bully. 
but you know, only if you didn't know him, I think, but he had gone through this sort of awful upbringing and then kind of through his own will made a little life for himself as a pianist that was good. And then that was taken away, you know, and then he, he sort of figured out not only how to keep going, but how to become who he was meant to be because of that loss, you know, and then that music ended up going global. I mean, I read a study that said that if you pull people from all over the world, including very rural places on other continents, and you play them some melodies and see what they recognize, the most recognized melody on the planet was Happy Birthday. And the second most recognized melody was Ode to Joy. And so he, 200 years ago, wrote the second most well-known melody in the world still. That's a pretty powerful thing to have done with your time on Earth, you know? Who knows? And I'm, I'm also obviously projecting a lot of my own stuff onto him. That's what we do with mm-hmm. dead people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we use dead people for our own means. And I'm completely using Beethoven as an excuse to talk about grief resolution through performed music. Mm-hmm. I can see us doing some sort of retreat around that, like the three of us. Well, oh my gosh, <laughs> right? That'd all, be so amazing. We need it. We so need to be able to have grief resolution because like you said, Reid, I mean, we have experienced so much grief, all of us, you know, throughout our whole lives. And, you know, those are little traumas that are happening to us. And and most of the time we don't resolve them. Um, and certainly this year has been like one big ball of grief oh, yeah. and disappointment and and yeah, just trying to navigate through. So yeah, yeah, everybody looks Completely. forward to <laughs> to what might be in the works when we can get together. These are things I've always believed and always tried to do with my music. And I'm using Beethoven as a convenient way to convey it because he's a person everyone's heard of. It's easier to talk about him than to talk about these ideas as pure ideas. Mm-hmm. Or since I'm not like a famous person, if I were to talk about it all in terms of myself, I'm not sure how many people would even listen. Mm-hmm. But if I talk about it in terms of this very, very famous musician, it's sort of like, oh, tell me more about that. You know, like it gives people a tangible starting point to understand these concepts. Whereas if I were to just talk about them mm-hmm. with no context, I think people would just be like, what is this guy talking about? And why should I trust him? And it's right. a gateway into your brain. Yeah. It's like what we were talking about. I think it was, I can't remember, maybe our first episode, Tara Lee, where we were interviewing each other and I was talking about the research on live music. Like what you want as a researcher is to have something, you know, that you can build upon. You don't want to be the first person that's talking about it because nobody's going to listen to you then. But if you have something to build upon, but yet you're still making new connections and you can tie things together that other people have begun the conversation about, then totally, that's when it can really fly forward. Yeah, I, I remember my first exposure to Joseph Campbell and I was sort of like, okay, okay, this is okay, this is okay. And then he started talking about Luke Skywalker and Darth <laughs> Vader and I was like, okay, I'm listening, you know? And then, and then when he talked about this redemption and this, the father figure and the evil within yourself and like, uh, you know, all the huge archetypal themes that are in Star Wars that are also in a gazillion earlier stories. And I was like, I get it. Now I get it, you know? 
Whereas if he had only talked about the ancient Greeks or something, I probably would have not gotten the message. That's a real thing. People need something that isn't new as a container for new information or they won't trust it. Yeah. It's kind of like <laughs> everything that we've been talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and to tie it all together with a nice sparkly bow. <laughs> I'm a big believer in what you guys are doing. And I think that it's a great thing that should be studied, but it's also something that I think a lot of people would benefit from having an overt talk about. And maybe the healing power could be a bit harnessed and used with intention thanks to you too. So good job. Yeah. Well, thank you for the work that you do. And yeah, we'd be dancing around trying to get <laughs> healing from crickets. <laughs> if it wasn't for people like you. <laughs> That's right. Crickets can be pretty funky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, Reed, this has been awesome. And is there anything else you'd like to say before we say goodbye to you? No, I think that's a good spot. I just want to say thanks for your work, both of you experientially and in research and in putting this podcast together and getting it out. And just thanks for using your inherent curiosity and intelligence to benefit other people in your community. That's about as good as we can do in this life, you know? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So, Reed, we'll say goodbye to you for now, and we will be back in just a moment. Well, that was so interesting. Oh, my gosh. We learned so much about Beethoven, and I loved when Reed was describing about the experience that he was having with the slip and watching them and, and having that intimate experience with other people. And I really feel like, you know, that's the thing that I'd love to just keep this conversation going. So what we mentioned or what I mentioned in the beginning with our Facebook group, with the Groove Therapy podcast community, come on in, let us know, have you had an experience where you felt healed or this intimate thing was happening with these strangers, but then all of a sudden it was over and you felt bonded to them. Like, let's share these stories. Have you had anything like that happen, Tara Lee? Yeah, I mean, that happens all the time. I'm, I'm trying to like rack my brain for a specific time that has happened and I can't think of one right now. So I'm going to have to think about it and go back to the Facebook community page and post it there. But I mean, there's so many... And I know so many people because of music and have such relationships with them because of it. And it, that doesn't happen, I would say, at every show. But when it does, it's like the most magical thing ever. And it's so special. And it's one of the reasons why I keep on going back for more and more music because you're hoping to have another experience like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we dove deep into, you know, really how how live music can be used as a therapeutic intervention and how music in general can be used as a therapeutic intervention. And we talked a lot about why people use music and how he's kind of been contemplating that himself and what music means in his life. And so I thought I would bring in just a little bit of research about the functions of music listening for our... Did you know? 
And so it's really interesting, actually, when I was doing my dissertation research and the literature review to dive into why people listen to music. And this is actually a question that has intrigued researchers for centuries because music is something that has been found since the beginning of time. But there's no specific evolutionary reason for us to have music. You know, it's not like food or water or something that, you know, we can say physically that we need to survive. But certainly I think that we could all say that spiritually, emotionally, we need music to thrive for sure. So I thought that was really interesting. But some of the reasons that they have found why people use music is for the production of pleasure. So feeling pleasure transcendence or escapism, entertainment, identity formation, cultural identification, seeking sensation, and to activate associations, moods, memories, experiences, and emotions. So I feel like a lot of those themes were talked about in both of these parts of this episode. And then also, you know, one of the main reasons that people use music is for affect regulation. So either to improve a negative mood or to induce a positive mood, you know, when we're not feeling good, we put on music or when we want to feel good, we put on music. And interestingly, younger adults and older adults both were found to use music as a means to pull away from everyday life. So a little bit of escapism. But for younger adults, it was to create their own individual space. So kind of to individuate from maybe the adults around them or people around them to say, I'm going to come into this place. I'm going to put on my headphones or I'm going to go into my room and I'm going to turn on my music and I'm going to slip into that space and I'm going to find out who I am, kind of identifying with the music. But then for older adults, it was, they used it, you know, they kind of have a sense of like who they are. So they don't really need to use music in that means. So they use music as a means for transcendence and in a way to experience the therapeutic effects of music through its ability to engage the mind, body, and the spirit. And so I think that Tara Lee may have a a way that maybe you guys could use that in a practical way right now. Yes, and I'm going to share that with the Daily Jam. So my tip today to bring that feeling into your everyday life is a ritual that I have recently started and it has really impacted my day. And when I don't do it, I really notice. And that is I lie on the ground I put on my headphones and I listen to music. And so my recommendation is because this is one that totally, I don't know, I got all the feels. I was like vibrating from head to toe. I had goosebumps all over. And it's an album that is by Reed Mathis and Electric Beethoven, which you now know intimately. And the album is a live album and it's called Maps We Found on the Ground. And so I recommend that you put, depending on how much time you have, you really want this to be uninterrupted time. So maybe you have five minutes, maybe you have 20 minutes, maybe you have a half an hour, whatever it is that you have, great, set a timer, put it on, lie down, close your eyes and fully just listen to the music. And see what happens. Yeah. And that is your daily jam. 
And then let us know what happens in our Facebook community over at Groove Therapy Podcast Community or send us a message on Instagram, which is Groove Therapy Podcast is our handle there, right? Yep, that's true. Yeah. And definitely make sure that you subscribe to Groove Therapy on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review if you can. That would be great. And um, we... And tell all your friends. Yes, tell all of your friends. (laughs) And help them to be able to experience the therapeutic benefits of music. You know, maybe they're not thinking about using music at this time. And actually, I forgot to mention as well, another thing that people use music for is stress reduction. So the American Psychological Association found in 2015 when they did a poll and asked people, what is the number one thing that you do for stress reduction? They said, listen to music. And I know that we can all use a little bit of stress reduction right now. So go throw on some music. Yeah, and and you're not being selfish when you're doing this. It's it's a really important act of self-love for yourself and the world to be listening to this music. Absolutely. And I also, I just got a, a text from my best friend today who sent me a video of her and her daughter doing a dance break during their virtual learning to music. Um, so, you know, that was a great idea to be able to put on some music and dance around. We're all spending way too much time on computers nowadays. We need to move. We need to infuse our mood um, with, with music. So put it on, do some dancing, lie down, allow it to change your cells in lots of cool ways. And um, yeah, we're so happy to be here with you having all of these conversations and talking about the power of music. Yes, we love each and every one of you. Thank you so much for listening. We're a part of the Osiris Podcast Network and we love you and we'll see you next time for our next episode. And we'll also see you online on the interwebs. Yep. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye. Till next time. Bye, everyone. Bye.